Welcome to the Shotguns and Sugar podcast, where we take a deeper look at topics you don't learn about in school. I'm Dr. McCloskey, and I enjoy exploring different parts of history. Like most of the important elements of the Industrial Revolution, medical care has been around for millennia. In this episode, I want to discuss the evolution of medicine from a religious practice to the foundations of the modern medical industry. The next podcast will discuss the industry's growth in the United States from the 1870s through the modern era. In terms of Western medicine, Hippocrates is often viewed as one of the most important early physicians, and he lived between 460 and 375 BCE. But even though a millennia and a half separated Hippocrates from the start of the Industrial Revolution, medical care really hadn't changed much. In fact, during the Renaissance and early Enlightenment, it was in some ways worse than under the ancient Greeks and Romans. This was especially true in colonial America, where it was difficult to find a physician, and oftentimes their treatments were a greater risk to the patient than the illness itself. During the early colonial era, medical care in the Spanish and French colonies were far more advanced than the British. The Spanish opened the New World's first hospital in 1503, just 11 years after Columbus first set foot in the Americas. Over the next century, they built some 125 hospitals in their colonies. France was not far behind Spain in the arena of American colonial hospitals. A group of Augustinian nuns established a hospital outside Quebec City in 1637. The Dutch set up the first hospital located in what would eventually become the United States. In 1658, the Dutch East India Company built a hospital in New Amsterdam to care for the sick soldiers and African slaves. However, it was closed when the British assumed control of the colony. Over the next 50 years, all the major port cities along the Atlantic seaboard built pest houses, essentially facilities to isolate immigrants suffering from infectious sicknesses. Philadelphia was the site of the first British colonial hospital designed to serve the general public. In 1732, an almshouse was constructed specifically for the care of the poor and the mentally ill in the city. An infirmary was built in conjunction with this almshouse. That infirmary evolved into the Philadelphia General Hospital we know and love today. The Spanish also established the first medical school in the Americas. It was created by Papal Bull in 1538. That's only 48 years after Columbus first set foot on Guanahai. He called it San Salvador. It was also 70 years before England's first settlement in Virginia. It was located in Santo Domingo, the oldest European community in the Americas. The first medical school in North America was founded in 1551 in Mexico City. The first medical school among British colonies was the Philadelphia College of Medicine, which opened its doors in 1765. It was followed two years later with King's College in New York City, now known as the Columbia University College of Physicians. One reason the British built so few hospitals was because there were so few people. In 1700, Boston, the largest and most important settlement along the eastern seaboard, only had 7,000 residents. Another reason was that, unlike the Spanish and French, as a rule, physicians did not accompany colonists to the Americas, so there were fewer doctors to begin with. Colonists may have had a physician on board the ship coming over, but his job was really to care for the crew. The passengers were of secondary consideration. Once they hit the beach, so to speak, he was on his way back to Europe with the ship's crew. If a shipload of colonists was lucky, one of their company may have had a year or two of medical training, most likely as an apprentice rather than formal schooling. That was reserved for the more aristocratic caste that rarely immigrated to the New World. Lack of medical care was certainly a factor in the high mortality rate among early colonists. 
between the settlement of Jamestown in 1607 and 1625, Virginia pioneers suffered an 80% mortality rate. That's comparable to the death rate among Native Americans during the same period. Survivors learned about helpful herbs and plants from the natives. In fact, in 1751, John Bartram, one of the finest botanists of the colonial era, identified and explained the medicinal value of 19 plants native to North America. A friend of his, Benjamin Franklin, published the list so his readers could use the plants in their own homes. The concept of herbalism, or the use of herbs and plants for medicinal purposes, is neither new nor old-fashioned. The drug aspirin was discovered by the ancient Greeks and is manufactured from the bark of a willow tree. In the early 1600s, Native Americans taught Jesuit missionaries to drink a mixture of wine and dried bark from the cinchona tree to prevent and treat malaria. It wasn't until 1820 that two French researchers, Paris-Joseph Pinleche and Joseph Biname Cavantou, extracted the tree's active compounds. They called it quinine. Quinine was used to treat malaria clear up until the 1940s. Their work is credited with the beginning of the use of natural and synthetic compounds for medicinal purposes. Even when there was a physician around, many colonists avoided them. The standard medical practices of the day mostly consisted of heroic medicine that depended on bleeding or purging or some combination of the two. These practices often did more harm than good. These circumstances created colonists who had to learn to go it on their own. Consequently, during the 1800s, a series of unorthodox medicinal practices competed with orthodox or scientific medicine. In addition to herbalism, these included spiritual or faith healing, Thompsonism, hydrotherapy, homeopathy, and eclectism, which was also called reform medicine. Yet despite the difficulties and challenges facing them, medicine on both sides of the Atlantic made substantial progress during the Industrial Revolution. Dr. Edward Jenner was responsible for one of medicine's first contributions to the era. Edward was born on May 17, 1749, just 11 years before the official opening of the Industrial Revolution. He was born and raised in Berkeley, a small town located in Gloucestershire in southwest England. He was the sixth of nine children born to Stephen and his wife Sarah, four of whom died under the age of two. In October of 1754, when Edward was five, his mother died giving birth to his younger brother, Thomas. Just two months later, his father also passed away. As an orphan, the responsibility for his life and upbringing transferred to his older brother, Stephen. Stephen assumed his father's old position as the rector of Rockhampton Church near Berkeley. During his early schooling, Edward developed what became a lifelong interest in science and nature. When he was eight, he became one of thousands of children who were inoculated against the dreaded disease of smallpox. In 1763, when he was 14, he was apprenticed to a nearby country physician named Daniel Ludlow. Seven years later, he moved to London to learn from the famous surgeon and naturalist John Hunter. His relationship with Hunter quickly evolved into a lifelong friendship. In addition to honing his surgical skills, Edward helped Hunter catalog the zoological specimens from Captain James Cook's first voyage around the globe. In 1772, Dr. Jenner returned to Berkeley, married, and established a career as a physician. As a country doctor, Jenner had the time to develop his interest in natural history. His work on the sleeping habits of the common hedgehog was incorporated into Hunter's publication titled Observations on Certain Parts of the Animal Economy and Observations on the Structure and Economy of Whales. Edward, with Hunter's encouragement, also published his own studies. 
His best-known work in the natural history field is Observations on the Natural History of the Cuckoo by Mr. Edward Jenner in a letter to John Hunter Esquire. How's that for a long title? It is available in the 1788 edition of the Philosophical Transactions of the Royal Society of London. Although virtually all the naturalists of his time disparaged Jenner's conclusions, the quality of his work caused the Royal Society to elect him a fellow. He was finally vindicated when a film made in 1921 proved his thesis. Since he personally experienced smallpox inoculation when he was eight years old, Jenner had been familiar with the accepted method of the day for preventing smallpox. Known as verilation, the practice was introduced to the West by Caucasian traders in the mid-1600s. They taught it to women in the Ottoman Empire. In 1721, Lady Mary Wortley Montagu, the wife of the British ambassador to Constantinople, brought the practice to England. When someone was verilated in England, the physician took a small amount of material from the pustule of an infected person and inserted it just under the skin of an uninfected person. Generally, the inoculated patient would develop an extremely mild case, usually just one or two pustules around the insertion point, and those would go away in a matter of days. After they healed, the inoculated person was then immune from further infection for pretty much the rest of their lives. This form of inoculation was highly successful. In 1721, a Boston physician verilated almost 300 of his patients during a smallpox outbreak. Whereas the rest of the community experienced a 14% infection rate, those inoculated only experienced a 2% infection rate. Although successful, verilation was also quite dangerous. First, there was no guarantee that the ensuing individual infection would be mild. Second, the inoculated person could, as a carrier, become the source of an even wider pandemic. Finally, since inoculation, as carried out in the 1700s, used fresh pus from an infected person for the inoculation, any other disease the source individual had, like syphilis, for example, would then be transmitted to the person being inoculated. While completing his medical apprenticeship with Dr. Ludlow, Jenner learned of the widely held belief that people who had contracted cowpox were immune from smallpox. While studying under Dr. Hunter, he continued to consider this folk belief. He thought that, if this folklore were true, inoculating someone with live cowpox would be safer than using live smallpox. Although it happened some distance away and was really never publicly reported, it is possible that he heard that a Dr. Benjamin Jesty had inoculated his family with cowpox in 1774 during a smallpox outbreak in Dorset with no apparent negative results. At any rate, he decided to try it once his own practice was well established. He found a milkmaid with fresh cowpox pustules on her hand. Milkmaids often acquired the disease from touching the udder of an infected cow, so having it on her hands was common. He extracted some of the material from the maid and inserted it under the skin of one of the children in the area. After the young man had recovered from the cowpox infection, a mild one that lasted only a few days, Jenner then inoculated him with matter from a smallpox pustule. The boy did not develop smallpox. Because the Latin word for cow is vaca, and the Latin word for cowpox is vaccinia, when Jenner published his research in 1798, he called his new procedure vaccination. Although his vaccine did degrade over time, opening the vaccinated individual to reinfection, it was, nevertheless, much safer than inoculating with a live smallpox virus. One reason he waited so long before publishing his experiment 
was to determine how long the vaccination might last. Fast forward 190 years. On May 8, 1980, the World Health Organization announced their 13-year-long program to eradicate smallpox worldwide using generous techniques was successful. Today, there are only two places where smallpox bacteria are found. Both are in secure research facilities. Because of his success in finding a way to prevent smallpox, Jenner is widely regarded as the father of the modern specialty of immunology and the man who coined the word vaccination. But as important a contribution as Jenner's vaccination is to the world, he was not the only doctor that contributed to the Industrial Revolution. I have already spoken of quinine and its contribution to modern pharmacology. The development of analgesics is another way drugs contributed to medical advancement in the Industrial Age. Opium had been used as an anesthetic for centuries. The oldest written reference to it is on a cuneiform tablet written around 3000 BCE. However, it was not until 1804 that Frederick Sittermer, a German chemist, isolated morphine. He named it after Morpheus, the Greek god of dreams. In 1842, a dentist in Rochester, New York, began using nitrous oxide as an anesthetic. 1845 saw the use of ether as a general anesthetic in the operating room, with chloroform coming along in 1847. But the most important contribution to medical science with ties to the Industrial Revolution was Louis Pasteur's contribution to our understanding of germ theory. One of, if not the most significant tool Pasteur used in his work was the microscope. Some purists argue that the ancient Romans discovered microscopy around 52 CE. One of their famous philosophers, Seneca, looked through a glass globe filled with water and reported that the letters on the other side of the globe looked considerably larger than the letters around them. But to me, the real discoverer of the microscope was the inventor who looked at the ground through a piece of curved glass and found that the small grains of dirt looked like boulders. Really, the development of the microscope occurred in three phases. The first developed around 1300 and was a basic single lens, like a monocle or a pair of eyeglasses. This kind of microscope, if you can call it that, permitted Thomas Malfit to study the itch mite in 1589. The second was a compound microscope. It was developed around 1600. This one used two lenses in a tube, increasing both the quality of the magnification and a better focus, so you can see smaller stuff. This version permitted Robert Hoke to observe the first cell. It also allowed Anthony van Leeuwenhoek to be the first to report the existence of protozoa, the first identified microorganism in 1665. Nobody believed him until Hooke confirmed his observation. The problem with these older microscopes had to do with the quality of the lens. Opticians had not figured out how to adjust the curvature of the lens in relation to the eye so everything they looked at was warped, which made it hard to figure out what the microscopist was looking at. The third phase of early microscope development solved that problem. Although Sir Isaac Newton claimed it could not be done, around 1730 Chester Moore Hall made the first apochromatic lens. A century later, in 1838, using an apochromatic microscope, Matthias Schlinden a German botanist theorized that cells provided the structure of plants. A year later, Theodore Schwann extended Schlinden's theory to animal life. Together, the two are credited with the creation of cell theory, the concept that the cell is the basic building block of all biological structures, be it a blade of grass or a human heart. Before cell theory, the few physicians that used microscopes used them for research. 
but Schlinden and Schwann connected the micro-world to the larger life forms, promoting increased interest in the use of the microscope within the medical profession. Over the next few decades, the microscope redefined or created the fields of anatomy, physiology, and pathology. So how does all this connect to Pasteur and germ theory? Germ theory originated around 1546 when Girolamo Fracastora, a Venetian Phoenician, argued that transferable spores could transmit infection. But because these spores were too small to be observed, his theory was generally ignored. After all, everybody knew if you can't see it, it doesn't exist. Agnostio Bassi validated Fracastora's theory in 1813 while investigating an illness that was destroying Italian silkworms. In the process, he brought the concept of germ theory to the attention of the medical establishment. In the 1860s, Louis Pasteur, a French microbiologist, placed a drop of anthrax-laden blood onto a sterile culture and allowed it to grow until the original culture had died, leaving only a second, then a third generation of the anthrax bacterium. He then injected his bacterium into a healthy sheep. When the sheep developed anthrax, it proved that it was the bacillus that was responsible for the disease. Pasteur's ability to grow and kill anthrax demonstrated that germs, both good and bad, can be controlled scientifically. Furthermore, whereas Bassi and Fracastoras proved that germs could cause disease, Pasteur demonstrated that it was possible to link a specific germ to a specific disease. This discovery changed the world of medicine. Orthodox medicine could now tell a patient what made them sick and, using Pelletier and Cavanto's compounding techniques, gives the patient medicine specifically designed to eliminate the offending germ. This change set orthodox medicine apart from its competitors who lacked the evidence-based diagnoses available through science. It gave society the foundation for the modern 21st century medical industry. In a future episode, we'll continue the maturation of the medical industry with special focus on the late 1800s and early 1900s. Thank you for listening to this episode of the Shotguns and Sugar podcast. If you'd like to learn more about this topic or access a list of resources used to create this podcast, check out our website, shotgunsandsugar.com.